This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we bring you a story from one of our listeners in the Twin Cities. We love telling you stories of redemption, and Paul Kotz wrote the book on it. Well, he wrote a book, Something Happened Today, a collection of the unexpected. The book was initially conceived by Kotz's desire to leave something inspiring for his daughters to read. The title is a suggestion to look for a miracle every day and is drawn from personal experience. Here's Paul. Years ago, I was working at a center for the homeless in Kansas City. Each day, we would receive donations from local markets and donors to feed 120 plus people in a place called the Family House. On a beautiful sunny Tuesday morning, a man yelled at me from across the street, Hey, you! It was my turn to wash windows at the Family Center. I would put the soapy water in the bucket, fill and rinse it out, and use a squeegee to make the windows glisten. I turned around and there was this guy waving at me from the dumpster in plain sight. He had a salt and pepper colored beard and he motioned for me to come over. I dropped my cleaning supplies and ventured across the street to see the man. Got the time, he asked. I gave him the time and he told me his name was Joe. Do you smoke? He asked. No. I thought back to my dad who had an air of confidence when he puffed away, many times driving his Thunderbird, convertible top down, and listening to his 50s and 60s music. In this case, Joe was smoking a Marlboro with deep puffs, exhaling through his nose with a purpose. His expression didn't change, but his wrinkles around the eyes exuded wear and tear, as well as his ability to smile. I have to make sure I get my stuff out of here before they throw me away too. He laughed. I realized and fully understood what he was saying. Each Tuesday morning early, the trash compactor would come and hoist the industrial steel dumpster into the air and empty the garbage and refuse from the past week. I thought about what we take for granted in our great country and how this type of life still exists. He went on to let me know a culinary tip too. He mentioned that he could not stand cauliflower. In addition to cleaning assignments at the shelter, we would venture to the downtown markets to catch some of the produce vendors throwing out strawberries, potatoes, onions, that dreaded cauliflower, and heads of lettuce with first signs of spoiling. A Christian brother named Lewis explained to us as workers that 10%, that is, the top of the crate, may be spoiled. But if cleared away, 90% of it is beautiful fruits and vegetables. We waste a lot of food around here, he told me. Well, store owners and shopkeepers were not always fond of us intercepting the crates before they were tossed in the trash. But many let us know the best times to stop by to pick up the edible food before it made its way there. 
I noticed in the dumpster he had a rickety blanket, two small kid-sized chairs, and a makeshift table. One week, I watched him do it. The restaurant bar would throw empty bottles and trash and fill the dumpster most of the way. But Joe would time it perfectly, waiting for the trash truck to pick up the refuse and then he proceeded to put his chairs and table back in for another week's worth of living. Want to play some cards? He asked me. I was kind of mesmerized by this man who seemed to just go about his business of living the streets so effortlessly. But this was a home to him, a place of comfort, protection, and possible peril if he forgot to wake up on a Tuesday. Yeah, once I had a close call, but people check on me to make sure I get out in time. He hopped back in, arranged the chairs and table, and then so did I. We played part of a game of cribbage with pegs of popcorn kernels. You want a banana? He asked me. He pulled out what seemed like a fresh fruit, unpeeled it, and we each had a half. Here is this guy who barely had a place to live, sharing what he had with me, his new card-playing buddy. It was early. Most of my colleagues were still asleep that morning, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I in a dumpster? I eventually returned to my window cleaning assignment. Some of you are thinking, I will never have lunch or coffee with me again, and make sure I wash my hands. But for me, this was a moment of grace in my life, a wake-up call, an awakening to another world that I never knew nor previously wanted to see. I thought about what I would do if this were me and how I would cope. Would I be playing cribbage, possibly drinking to avoid the pain, or maybe dead because I didn't have the stamina or the resourcefulness of Joe? I will never forget that man's generosity who offered his temporary home, part of his sustenance, a game to play, his creative adaptation of life, and his daily appreciation of the moment. And you've been listening to Paul Cotts, and what a terrific story about grace and about, well, learning to see what's unseen and to have grace, and to share experiences with people you might not ever think you'd have anything in common with or have anything to learn from. Paul is a listener in the Twin Cities on WCCO, and that's Minneapolis-St. Paul. And if you have stories like this, we'd love to hear them. And by the way, I love that he's written this book to inspire his daughters, because there's so little around to read to our kids that inspires them. And they're yearning for it, and they're desperate for it, and we all are. And that's what we try and do on Our American Stories. Paul Kotz's story, and in the end, Joe's story, too, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we tell stories about leadership and business, well, quite often. And today we have the story of Kim Scott. She's a well-known CEO coach in Silicon Valley. In 2017, she published a book called Radical Candor. This book is full of wisdom for those wanting to lead a productive and cohesive team. Today, Kim will be sharing how she came to write this life-changing book. Here's Sarah with the story. Kim Scott grew up with a father who was a lawyer and a stay-at-home mother. She attended an all-girls Catholic school and loved it. Today, Kim has an incredibly brilliant and successful career. But her schooling didn't start out that way at all. In fact, she failed kindergarten. The, the reason I failed kindergarten was because I somehow I didn't get the I didn't get the message I was supposed to have been reading books. There were 12 boxes of books in the back of the room. And I remember vividly, sort of towards the end of kindergarten, somebody said, what box are you on? I said, what are you talking about? What box am I on? And she said, you're supposed to have read three books out of each box by the end of the year. And I panicked and I went and I got the hardest book out of the hardest box because that was one my mom read to me. And so I decided if I could read that one, then I would pass. And I read it, and then the teacher pulled out flashcards to see if I, could, if I could really read or if I had just memorized the book. And I was busted. I was totally busted. I could not read any of the flashcards. So it, was a, it made a lasting impression on me. Don't, don't try to BS your way through things. We know that Kim failing kindergarten the first time around didn't hold her back from the success she would experience later on in life and from the success that would lead her to write her book, Radical Candor. After studying Russian literature, she moved to Russia. Her first job there involved arms control. After the coup happened, things shifted, and Kim, not wanting to leave Russia quite yet, got a job at a diamond-cutting factory. It was my job to hire some diamond cutters to, to build this, to start this factory. And I thought this was going to be easy because I thought, you know, they, they, their salaries are in rubles and I have dollars and the rubles are worthless and that's all management is. It's just about paying people, right? I, I sort of looked, my no, looked down my nose at management. And so I went out. Uh, to talk to these diamond cutters and it turned out that money wasn't enough that they what they wanted was a picnic they wanted to have a picnic (laughs) and I thought gosh picnic okay well I can go I can take them on a picnic so we went on this picnic we each had our own bottle of vodka that's traditional Russian picnic and by the end of the bottle of vodka I realized that what they really cared about was knowing that if things went to hell in Russia, they would have a boss who would care enough about them at a personal level to help them get out. Really, that was the moment in my life when management started to seem to me like something that was interesting and, and even noble if done right. So I would say that was the, that was the beginning of my interest in, in a career in management. I had a boss pretty early in my career who really he made me very unhappy. I think we've all had a boss like this. He would say stuff like, don't worry your pretty little head about that. And it was so, it was so miserable working for him 
that I actually literally shrunk half an inch while I was working for him. I remember at one point at this company, we had to do layoffs. The person who was in charge of communicating the layoffs called everybody into the central office space afterwards, not realizing that a number of the people who had just been laid off were still there. And he started yelling at people not to look so sad. It was just, it was really awful. And I decided, you know, if I were the boss, everything would be so much better. Everything would be different. And, and it was really part of the reason why I decided to start a software company of my own, because I thought if I were the boss, I would make things better. It was a very humbling experience to realize how difficult it is to lead a team of people and how little we are taught to do it. I, I was sort of, I went out, I raised this money, and I was like figuring it out as I went along. And, and one of the reasons why I wrote Radical Candor years later was because I don't want people to be in that same situation I was in, where you're sort of thrown into the deep end of management. And the problem is that if you drowned when you're thrown into the deep end, you don't hurt only yourself. You drag a whole team of people down with you. So after I started, the, this company was called Juice Software, determined to avoid the mistakes of my previous boss who had made me shrink. And I hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and I really liked Bob a lot. There was one problem with Bob, however. He was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. He would hand stuff in to me and there was shame in his eyes. He knew he was doing terrible work. And I was so puzzled, I couldn't understand what was going on with him because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. And I, I learned actually much later that what was going on with him was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom four times a day. But I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I didn't know that. All I knew was that he was doing terrible work. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was gonna lose all my best performers because they were sick and tired of covering up for his bad work. And so I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have begun 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to Bob where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. I had failed Bob in a bunch of really important ways. Kim soon began to realize management was not quite as black and white as she had previously thought. It had a lot more to do with relationships and knowing her employees than just accomplishing the tasks at hand. Here was one of the most important moments I had as a manager. I, I had set aside the first two hours of the day to make a very important pricing decision. And I walked in the door of the office, and this, it, was a, it was this super cool office in the East Village in Manhattan, and it was a big loft space. And I always felt a jolt of energy when I walked into the office. And this day, I was really excited to make this pricing decision. And somebody who worked for me ran up to me pale, just ashen, 
and he was having a, a very serious medical problem that, that he had just found out about the night before. And so I sat down and had a cup of tea with him and talked him through what his next steps were and, and what the coverage plan would be while he was out. And, and then he sort of seemed to be in a better place and I, I started to walk to my desk to, to sit down and make this pricing decision. And I walked past another person on the team, and this was just a 65-person company. I mean, imagine if you had a really huge company. And I knew that his son was in the intensive care unit. And I couldn't just walk by him and say, hey, how's it going? I, I knew how it was going. His life was living hell. And so I sat down and I talked to him for a while and I suggested that he leave, even if he didn't need to go to the hospital, he could go and work out or take a nap, he needed to take care of himself. And then I walked past uh, another person on the team and, and his son had just won some fabulous math award in Manhattan. And so now I'm sort of whiplashed from, from grief to celebration. And by the time I sat down at my desk, I just, I had nothing left. I could not think about, A, a lot of time had gone by, but B, I just wasn't in a mental place to, to make this pricing decision. And so I went into a conference room and I called my coach, my CEO coach, and Leslie Koch was her name, an ex-Microsoft executive, whip smart and, and very strongly opinionated, not, not shy with her opinions. And I was really frustrated, and I, I said to Leslie, I said, I feel like I'm just an arm, armchair psychologist. You know, am I a babysitter or, or am I a CEO? And she, there was this long pause on the line, and then she said, Kim, this is called management, and it is your job. We're so tempted to think that some stuff is real work and other stuff is not real work. Even the, the, the skills that leaders must develop to really listen with compassion to issues that people have, we call them soft skills. And there's nothing soft about it. It is hard. It is exhausting. And it yields real business benefits. I sort of had in my mind, and I think a lot of people had this, that, that the pricing decision was my job and all this other stuff was, you know, quote unquote, merely human. And it turned out that the, the human stuff, and this was a lesson I learned over and over and over again. That was the same lesson I learned with the diamond cutters in Moscow, is the human part of the job is the job, actually. And that was another thing that I learned when I, when I was starting Juice, because it was incredibly stressful. We launched our product to, really, to Wall Street on September 10th, 2001. So a lot of things went uh, wrong and went wrong for a long time for the whole world, obviously. Uh, but it, it, made, it made starting a company and raising money and selling to Wall Street firms really, really, really difficult. Sell being an extremely generous term for what actually happened. <laughs> we, we sold Juice at a great loss and uh, to a company called ProClarity, which then got bought by Microsoft. So the technology that Juice had developed went to Microsoft, but the whole team and I went to Google. Throughout the process of selling her company, she was also looking for a job. I called a friend of mine from business school. 
Sheryl Sandberg, and because I was I was interviewing for a couple of jobs in New York, and she said, "I'm not going to give you advice about those jobs in New York. Fly out to California, and come see what's going on here at Google." I fell in love with the company so much. Of the culture at Google in 2004, it was what I had been trying to create at Juice, but what I had not succeeded in creating. So it was almost like getting that job at Google was almost like the resurrection of the dream、uh, that I had when I started Juice. Little did Kim know, she had a big lesson to learn about herself. Shortly after I joined Google, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of the company about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room, and there, in one corner, was Sergey Brin wearing toe shoes, standing on an elliptical trainer, sort of stepping away, pedaling away. And there, not what I was expecting. And there, in the other corner of the room, was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time. And he was so deep in his email; it was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. And I felt totally nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. And he said, "What did you say? That's incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources?" So. I'm thinking the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And I walked out of the room after the meeting was over, and I walked past my boss, who was Sheryl Sandberg, and I was expecting sort of a high five or a pat on the back or something. And instead, Sheryl says to me, "Why don't you walk back to my office with me?" And I thought, "Oh wow, I've screwed something up. I'm sure I'm about to hear about it." And Sheryl began the conversation. Not in the feedback sandwich. There's a there's a less polite word for that. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say it. But really, seeming to mean what she was saying and telling me some things I hadn't been aware of before. So very specific, very sincere. But of course, all I wanted to hear about was what I had done to screw up. And eventually, Cheryl said to me, "You said I'm a lot in there. Are you aware of it?" And then I breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared when I had a tiger by the tail? And I kind of made this brush-off gesture with my hand, and I said, "Yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really." And then Cheryl said to me, "I know this great speech coach. I bet I could get Google to pay for it. Would you like an introduction?" And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand, and I said. No, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time to go to a speech coach. And at this point, Cheryl looked at me, stopped, looked me right in the eye, and she said, "I can see when you do that thing with your hand. I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say 'um' every third word, it makes you sound stupid." Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say that I sounded stupid, but in fact, it was actually the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me at that moment. Because if she hadn't used just those words, if she hadn't said, "When you say、um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid," I would never have gone to see the speech coach. 
But by the way, she wouldn't have used those words with other people on her team who were maybe better listeners than I was. But those were the words she needed to use with me in order to get me to act. And when I did go see the speech coach, I learned that Cheryl was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this, and this was news to me because I had been giving presentations my entire career. I had, I had raised millions of dollars for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And it really made me stop to think. First of all, why had no one told me? It was almost like I had been going through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me that it was there. But it also made me think, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And when I thought about it, I realized that it really boiled down to two things. One, care personally, two, challenge directly. So I knew, let's start with, with care personally, I knew that Cheryl had my back. Cheryl, if you worked with Cheryl directly, you knew that she cared about you, not merely as an employee, but, but at a very human level. When, when I first moved to California from New York, I didn't really know anybody. I was very lonely, and Cheryl could tell I was lonely, and she introduced me to a book group that I'm still part of to this day. If you worked directly with Cheryl, you knew she had your back. When, when I had a family member fall ill, she said, go get on the airplane. Your place is with your family right now. We're gonna write your coverage plan. You have a great team. We've got your back. That's what great teams do for one another. And relationships don't scale. Cheryl's a human being. She can't have a relationship with more than a few people at a time. Same with all of us. But they do tend to ripple out and create culture. So when the leader of an organization is treating their people with humanity, then they tend to treat their people with humanity. And culture does scale, even though relationships don't. So that was the care personally part. But I also knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that if I was screwing something up, Cheryl was gonna tell me. She wasn't so concerned about my short-term feelings that she was gonna fail to tell me something that I'd be better off knowing in the long run. So that's really radical candor in a nutshell, care personally, challenge directly. Kim had learned from her boss, Cheryl Sandberg, this lesson that had been popping up all over her professional career, the importance of radical candor. The two parts of radical candor being one, care personally, and two, challenge directly. You always need both. Now Kim works with managers to help coach them to be better managers all over the country. The biggest question when I work with new managers, the biggest question they often have is, what do bosses do anyway? Do they actually do real work? And, and so I think it's really useful to get very specific about what bosses are responsible for doing. And they're responsible for giving feedback to a team to achieve results. So that's three things. First, feedback. You've got to create a culture of feedback. As the boss, it's not your job to, get, to give all the feedback, although you do have to lead by example, but to create a real culture of feedback where people are telling each other what is great and what's not so great so that problems get resolved quickly. 
So that's one, feedback. The second thing that bosses are responsible for is building a cohesive team. You want a team on which, in which people can really take a step in the direction of their dreams. You know, you're not responsible for Fantasy Island as the boss, but you want people to be growing in a way that works with their lives and their life goals. The third and final thing never to be forgotten that bosses are responsible for is achieving results. But they can only achieve results if they're giving feedback and they're building a cohesive team. Kim also learned that within the workspace, people have two different priorities. This will affect why and how they work. And a strong team, a good team, ought to be made up of two types of workers, the rock star and the superstar. I was working with a, a leader at Apple who explained to me that the, there are times in our careers where we are gunning for the next job, where we're firing on all cylinders, we're doing really great work, and then we are also starting to achieve at the next level. We're growing really quickly. There are other people on your team who are in rock star mode, and these are the people who don't want your job, they don't want to be Steve Jobs, but they are great at their job, and if you don't screw it up, they'll just keep doing their job. And these people are your rock of Gibraltar. These people are the source of stability on your team. They're really great at their job, but they're, but they're not necessarily on such a steep growth trajectory. And we all have different moments in our careers where we need to be in one mode or another. Sometimes we, we didn't plan on these moments happening. So for me, this, this moment, I, I had prided myself my whole career on being in superstar mode. I thought that was the only mode that mattered. And I had been assessing people all wrong all along on my team, giving way too much credence to people who are in superstar mode and way too little credit to people who are in rockstar mode. So what in the hell is the difference between rockstar mode and superstar mode? And it's really important to think about these as modes, not personality types, because we're all in different modes at different points in our career. So when I was working at Google, Somebody came to me and said, a venture capitalist came to my office and said, you know, we are looking to hire a new CEO of Twitter. And that was a job that ordinarily I would have given my left arm to th throw my head in the ring for. But at this moment in time, I was pregnant with twins and I was 40 years old. And I called my doctor and I asked her what she thought about this opportunity. And she said, well, what's more important to you, that job or the hearts and lungs of your children? <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's pretty clear. That's, a, that's an easy choice. I guess I'm not gonna be applying for that job right now. And I realized that, that Google had created this wonderful opportunity for me where I had been doing this job for four and a half years. I knew how to do the job. I had built this wonderful team around me who could support me. And I, it wasn't like I wasn't working. I didn't have to quit working. And by the way, not every woman who's 
pregnant with twins can't apply to be the next CEO of Twitter. I was just I was older and I was having a high risk pregnancy, so I don't want to I don't want to be discouraging of anyone. But it was not the time for me. I needed to be in rock star mode if I was going to get through this pregnancy. And it turned out like it, Google had excellent snacks everywhere, very healthy food. They had a lap pool where I could swim. There was a maternal massage person one floor up. So I will always be grateful to Google for uh, for helping me get all the way to 38 weeks with uh, with that pregnancy. So I think uh, there there are a lot of different reasons why people are in rock star mode at different moments in their career. Uh, I worked with one amazing customer support rep, and I gave him the opportunity to lead the team. And he said he didn't want to lead the team because what he really wanted to do was to be an actor. And so what was most important to him was that he could leave the office at five o'clock and go be in these off-Broadway shows. And again, one of the shameful moments in my career is that I didn't respect that in the way that I should have. And it wasn't until several years later when I was talking to this leader at Apple about the difference between how you manage people in, in rock star mode and people in superstar mode that I came to value, as I should have, that customer service person and also came to respect, as I should have, the decision that I made not to throw my hat in the ring for that CEO job because it would have been the wrong thing. But I had felt, for a long time, I had felt sort of ashamed that I hadn't. And that's ridiculous. We all need to have these rock star moments in our careers. Learning to value and cultivate the rock star and the superstar modes, Kim has helped manage all different types of people. It's given her the ability to have radical candor with those as she leads them. But it looks different depending on the group or culture of people she's working with. So I think it's so important that when you are offering radical candor that you remember that it gets measured not at your mouth, but at the listener's ear. And so you've got to adjust how you're talking for the culture that you're in and and also for the person who you're talking to. In the um story that I told earlier, Cheryl could tell because I was making this brush off gesture with my hand that she needed to be more direct with me, that she wasn't getting through. So she was adjusting how she was talking to the fact that I was sort of demonstrating that I wasn't listening. She probably she probably wouldn't have used those words that she used with me with someone else on the team. I was raised in Memphis, and sometimes I joke that I was born and bred for manipulative insincerity, which is what I call it when you neither care nor challenge. And it's so important, it was so important to me in my life and in my career to hold on to that Southern kindness, but to adopt more directness. Kim struggled with radical candor because it felt counterintuitive, especially to generally nice people. But she soon learned that being honest with people, even when it hurts and even when it's tough, was the most loving thing that she could possibly do for a friend or an employee. The most difficult thing for me to overcome was was giving people critical feedback. It was so hard for me because I f- it felt so mean. 
And I, I so view myself as a kind person. And in fact, when, when I started Juice, the, the software company, I, got, I walked into the office one day and I had an email from, from the same article emailed to me from 10, 10 different people. And it was an article about how people would rather have a boss who is a total a-hole but really competent than one who's really nice but really incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or are they sending me this because they think I'm incompetent? And, and surely those are not my two choices. <laughs> and yet I think we often do have this, we create this sort of false dichotomy in our minds that you're either going to be super successful or a good person. And it is possible to be both good and great. It turns out that you can do great things and keep your humanity. I'm Sarah with Our American Stories. And great job to Sarah and great job to Faith as well for producing the piece. And what a terrific story about life, about growing up, about leading, about candor, and about kindness, because you can do both. In fact, as she said over and over ago, Kim, to not be truthful with someone is just mean. And you don't have to be mean with people to be truthful. Kim Scott's story, a radical candor story. And we'd love to hear your stories about leadership, about being a boss, being a mother and father, and these two things, because my goodness, I can't imagine being a parent without both, without kindness and candor. And I love what she said about growing up in Memphis, because we broadcast not far from Memphis. And there is a lot of manipulative insincerity in some of the Southern kindness I've experienced. So hold on to that kindness. But if you don't care, then it means nothing. Radical candor, Kim Scott's story here on Our American Stories. American stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. 
and today's lesson is titled On Being Frank. I was uh, a manager of a floor of a dorm at a college in Boston where I got to live for free in an apartment in exchange for work of making sure the kids didn't burn the place down. And there was a security guard at the elevator. His name was John. I won't say his last name, doesn't matter. And uh, we, as you wait for the elevator, as I wait for the elevator, I opened a conversation with him, got to know him a little bit better. Uh, we never went out for drinks or dinner or anything like that, but just uh, elevator conversation. And then one day I said to him, and I realized this guy had more capability than sitting at a desk and checking kids' IDs. And I said, John, you know, I think you could do more with your life than this. And 20 years later, I got a letter in the mail from John on stationery, on a corporate stationery. And he mentioned, he said, you may not remember, but of course I do remember. The comment that you made changed my life. No one ever said a positive thing like that, that I could do better than, than what I was doing. And your comment motivated me to go back to school to get a degree in accounting. And now I'm running a forensic accounting firm. And I just thought that you'd like to know. And I want to thank you for that. So it's very important to me when you see people doing exceptional work, to say something about that. You can change their day, their week, and in this case, their life, by just saying a pause, giving them direction or giving them a positive comment. By the way, I also don't hold back on giving negative comments. <laughs> if you get the bad service, you should make that clear. Maybe not to that person, but to that person's manager. Because less, these are lessons. You can help people by giving them inspirational comments, and you can help people by telling them that they did something wrong and why it was wrong and how to, to perform better. Recently, a friend of mine told me a story. He's a uh, friend from where, many years back, and unfortunately, he had prostate cancer, and he's been treated, hopefully successfully. But during part of these treatments, he went to the hospital, and he just related this story to me. They put a um, name tag on you at hospitals now to make sure there's no errors and they barcode and everything. And uh, he didn't check the uh, bracelet they put on him. And he went then to the next station where they were supposed to inject him with various chemicals or do some tests. And they read the name tag and it was incorrect. It was the incorrect name tag and label bracelet, right? Now, he told me, when the service people asked him, well, who gave you that? We want to follow up. He says, no, no, be, be nice to them. Well, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. When someone makes an error, a, and that's a serious error, someone's life could have been, could have been affected in a very negative way. He could have been killed. If, if they didn't check his name tag and gave him the wrong medicine, he could have died. So I believe in, you know, it's nice, it's obviously better if you can give positive reinforcement when things happen, when you see an opportunity, but it's also very important to give people frank and honest assessments and to fire them if necessary, to fire people. Now my company, uh, we have a very good retention rate. We have many people have stayed with the company, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and even now 30 years of the company because we're careful in hiring. But nevertheless, we're not perfect. And our rule of the company is if you hire someone that doesn't work out, 
you should fire them. Now, firing sounds cruel in some ways. Of course, nobody likes to fire someone and nobody likes to be fired. But think of it this way. I tell my managers in the company to think about that person who isn't working out. You are stealing years from their life by keeping them in a position where they're not doing a good job. And they probably know it. Whether or not they don't know, whether or not they know it, you are stealing from them the opportunity of going somewhere else where they may be very, very effective and happy. So I, I see uh, terminating people or hiring people as something that, that is very important, very precious. You're dealing with people's lives. Most people don't think about this, but you're going to spend more time at work than with your spouse, than with your friends. It, of your awake time, you're going to spend probably 80% of it at work. So you better enjoy it. You better like the people you're around, because if you don't, you're wasting your life. And thanks for that advice. And Dr. Bob, always telling stories, and that's why he's here. This is not love line or advice line. But stories always drive our lessons from Dr. Bob. And again, Bob is the founder of Cognex, the world's leader in machine vision systems. But that's not why he's here. It's his wisdom. It's his voice. It's, it's his compassion. And if you want to hear more life lessons from Dr. Bob, go to our website, OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, a story about driving. From the time we're 16 or such, most of us drive. We drive to work, we drive to school, we drive across the country sometimes, and sometimes, like my daughter and I do, we just drive around, just for the heck of it, because it's fun to do. But have we ever had to relearn to drive on the spur of the moment? For Robert Froelich, he had to do just that. Here's Robert with his story called Learning to Drive. Of course we know how to drive. It's not only a necessity in most of the country, but getting a driver's license is a rite of passage we all looked forward to at a certain age. But wait a minute. Maybe we've been driving for years, but what would happen if you or I encountered a completely different driving challenge? That happened to me once. It was on a Saturday morning in August 1986 on the side of a mountain in Jonesville, Virginia. Now, Jonesville is about 35 miles east of the Cumberland Gap. A crowd of people stood watching as I got behind the wheel and started the engine. 
My hands were sweating and my heart was pounding a little as I shifted gears and prepared to drive forward down the mountain. As the vehicle began to move, well, that's when I noticed I'd put it into reverse by mistake. In 1986, I was an adult group leader of a high school work team involved in the Appalachia Service Project, also known as ASP. There were four teams from our church that year. We brought with us tools and vehicles and collected building supplies. My good friend Jack donated the use of his 18-wheeler, a diesel tractor and 40-foot enclosed trailer. So we loaded our materials in the semi and Jack drove it. There was only one problem. On the way down from Racine, Wisconsin to Jonesville, Virginia, Jack became ill. By the time we arrived in Jonesville, he was burning up with fever and in a great deal of pain. He tried rest and aspirin, but by Tuesday it was clear he was getting worse. So that evening, his wife loaded him into their station wagon and hauled him off to Lexington, Kentucky, to the hospital there. I walked over to their car to say goodbye. Jack rolled down the window and reached into his wallet for some bills. He handed me $300 and said, please get my truck home. And then they drove off. There I stood on the side of a mountain. My best friend was seriously and mysteriously ill and on his way to a hospital over three hours away. And just below me on the dirt road by the supply barn sat this truck. Now, this was not a new truck. It was a 1975 international conventional. Conventional means it had one of those long hoods about the length of your average Toyota Prius. It was powered by a 9 jillion cubic inch engine, diesel. The exhaust stack was the size of a chimney on a small house. You had to climb a ladder just to get into the driver's seat. It wasn't an automatic transmission, no. It had a five-speed manual transmission and a little lever on the shift knob with three ranges. When these were used in combination, you had 13 forward gears and two in reverse. There was a chart on the dashboard showing the shift pattern. It looked like the organization chart of a medium-sized company and was about as easy to understand. The brake pedal looked like Bigfoot's footprint. And of course, the brakes were air brakes. The steering wheel was twice the size of the one in my car and there were gauges, little dials all over the dash. Temperatures of the engine, transmission, axles, pressure in the air tank, vacuum, tachometer, fuel, two tanks worth. The tanks each held 80 gallons of diesel fuel. The driver's seat was air operated so you could raise or lower it and ride on a cushion of air. That was so that instead of fracturing your back when you hit a bump, you merely suffered spinal contusions. And behind all this hung a 40-foot long, 13-foot high, bright yellow trailer with a canvas top and barn-like doors in the back. I knew how to drive, but this was going to be a little different. 
I had one thing against me and one thing in my favor. Against me was the fact that the day Jack left me in charge of this 18-wheeler was Tuesday, and we weren't leaving until Saturday. After all, it was work to be done, floors to be repaired, ceilings to be sheetrocked, so I had four days to think about it. The one thing in my favor, though, was that I knew exactly where I wanted to go. My destination was Racine, Wisconsin, specifically the north parking lot of Christ Church United Methodist. I also knew that the trip would take two days and that the distance was about 650 miles. I knew there was to be an intermediate stop in Jeffersonville, Indiana at a day's end, and I knew which highways would take me there. If there was ever a time for prayer, that Saturday morning was it. I said, Lord, I know Jack's name is on the side of this truck, but it's really your truck. Help me to get it home without wrecking or killing anyone. In Jesus' name, amen. My pastor was in the passenger seat, so we were good to go. Then we started moving backwards. Flashing a sheepish grin at the anxious crowd, which included my daughter Robin, I found first gear and started down the mountain toward Jonesville, Virginia. Now, I mentioned that this monster truck had a long hood, which is a distinct disadvantage when descending a steep, curving mountain road. Basically, I could not see exactly where I was going. So I practically stood up in the cab as we crept forward and downward. We reached the bottom and turned onto a paved road. It was a great relief for a while. The next challenge was to get through the town without hitting anything. One car in front of me slowed abruptly and I hit the brakes. All the trailer tires grabbed, screeched and smoked. So that's how air brakes worked. Finally, out of town, it was all tranquil until we came upon an old pickup truck moving along at a snail's pace. The driver waved us by. You've got to be kidding. I gulped, caught a lower gear and floored the nine jillion horse engine. Slowly, we crept by the pickup and again, it was smooth sailing. Remember I mentioned the uh, Cumberland Gap? The road through it climbs slightly and then plunges down toward Kentucky. On the downhill side, I remember seeing some signs somewhere saying trucks use low gear. So I tried to find one. It seems I missed something though because between moving the little three position lever on the shift knob, putting in the clutch and moving the shift lever, I found the truck was stuck in neutral. Neutral, as in no engine braking going downhill. Fortunately, the trailer was empty, so I kept the engine RPMs up to maintain air pressure and feathered the brakes gently and soon we were on level ground. I turned to the pastor and said, I missed a gear back there. He replied, I thought something was wrong. Your eyes got kind of big on the way down. Then it was a pleasant drive up Highway 25E toward Corbin, Kentucky. 
the team vans were ahead of us and we caught up with them at a rest stop along I-75. The pastor decided to give up his seat to one of the high school kids. I was never sure if pastor's faith had been so sorely tested during that ride that he needed some relief or if he was so impressed that I didn't wreck that he figured the kid would be safe. The vans left and were soon out of sight as we made our way north, blissful in the thought that it was nothing but interstate all the way to Jeffersonville, Indiana. Up ahead, the interstate splits, but a state police car with flashing lights blocked the I-64 lane, forcing us to go north on I-75. I've got nothing against Cincinnati, but I really wanted to go west, where there was a motel room with a soft bed waiting for me. Now, in a car, this would not be a problem. Just find a back road going west, take a scenic detour. But I was driving the beast. The kid and I had to do some thinking. We opened up the big road atlas and I told him, we're looking for wide roads. Eventually, we found our way back to the interstate. I saw the Jeffersonville exit and I took it. And I realized I was heading right into the city. So I told the kid we had to turn around. I hung a left hoping to circle a park there, but it was a little tight with cars parked on the street. A few minutes later, as we pulled into the motel parking lot, I saw a large group of people standing there. Some cheered. I think my daughter had tears in her eyes. And there was Jack eyeing his truck for damage. The next morning began with a bit of tension. My friend Jack, having been released from the hospital, felt he was ready to take back his truck. Our pastor had other ideas. Now, Jack was about 6'5 and had a strong body built for hard work. Pastor was about my height, 5'9 or so, and with a build better suited for academic pursuits. Would reason prevail? Jack simply muttered a bit, turned around to find his wife and car. Pastor seemed to have regained a measure of faith and decided to ride shotgun with me again. So we convoyed out of the motel parking lot and got on I-65 North. Once, when we were on a different adventure, Jack told me a joke. Do you know how a trucker spells relief? C-L-O-S-E-D, as at the entrance to a truck way station where the potential for legal trouble abounds. Unfortunately, the next sign I saw read O-P-E-N. Now, I have to point out that by driving the beast, I was doing nothing illegal. Stupid maybe, but perfectly legal. I also knew we could not be overweight since the trailer was empty except for some luggage. Nevertheless, it was with some queasiness that I slowed to enter the scales and subject myself to the scrutiny of law enforcement. I tried to look like I'd been there before. I slowed to the posted speed and slowed to a stop when the sign flashed stop. 
Then a voice came from the loudspeaker. Um, would you back up a bit? Oh good, now I'd drawn attention to myself. An officer emerged from the building and approached the beast. I rolled down the window and he said, can I see your logbook? As a private hauler, one who only hauled his own stuff, Jack just kept records in a pocket calendar. He'd shown me how to do it once, so I had written down my start and stop times, locations, and mileage. The lawman looked at the calendar and asked, don't you have a real logbook? At this point, the pastor panicked and he blurted out, we're on a church mission trip and we're on our way home. The officer replied, you're empty now, right? Then he waved us on. Relieved and grateful, we moseyed back out onto the interstate and headed for Chicago. I had driven through the Windy City many times, but I could never get used to the driving style, which is a characteristic of both the Indy 500 and your local Saturday night demolition derby. The death wish is strong. Being from New York, you'd think I wouldn't be phased by the traffic, but in the Big Apple, we mostly honked our horns and yelled at each other while hardly moving at all. In Chicago, I felt like I needed a crash helmet. Our practice as a mission team, we'd done this for several years, was to stop at the last oasis, Illinois' fancy name for rest stop, where the leader would call someone back in Racine to alert them of our arrival in about an hour. That way, anxious parents could rush to the church parking lot and then worry until the first van appeared. So we stopped took bathroom break and walked back out. Give me the keys, said Jack. I looked up, way up to where the voice was coming from and I said, let me finish when I started. And I gulped. Two male eagles were about to ruin a great friendship. Jack graciously gave in, but then insisted on riding shotgun. What little confidence I'd built up in the last day and a half wilted under the watchful eyes of the boss. Every shift, remember there were 13 forward gears, every movement of the throttle or application of the brakes, every glance at the mirrors, every detail was being scrutinized by the guy who owned the truck. As we approached the last toll booth, Jack told me to be careful because he'd had an accident right at this very spot when some eager driver cut him off. Then he told me I should downshift. It was agony. Soon, however, we spied the Welcome to Wisconsin sign and we were on the home stretch. I flicked on the right turn signal, braked, downshifted, and took the Highway 20 exit. A few minutes later, I turned right two more times and drove up the hills of the church. My younger daughter and wife were standing there, and when she saw me, my wife exclaimed, Daddy's driving! I turned to Jack and we shook hands. Then with one last whoosh of the air brakes, my journey was over. Thanks be to God. In Philippians it said, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Again, thanks be to God.
And great job, as always, to Monty for the production of the piece and, my goodness, great service. No doubt he was performing it. He and the church group find their way regularly to the Appalachia Service Project. They haul stuff with them, wood and everything else that they can lay their hands on to help people in need. And on this particular occasion, on the side of a mountain, it's 1986, and his buddy's in trouble, and he's got to get his big rig home. And that's a great story about what compassion looks like in America, and it happens every day, these stories, and what happens along the road. Stories and more stories of just friends getting together to help strangers, and road trips that happen for a real purpose. And this is a purposeful road trip, folks. And Americans take these kind of purposeful road trips all the time. That's what we love to do here in Our American Stories. Tell the stories of ordinary folks doing beautiful things and sometimes pretty dangerous things like driving an 18-wheeler that you never drove before. Robert Froelich's story, Learning to Drive, here on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, well, most of us want to avoid. Uh, We worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's. Even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them, they just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's was just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause. And he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit. And a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. 
Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Winsville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple mm -hmm. more of you even. Yes. So yep. who else do we have here? There's this is Kim. This is Kimera. Yeah. This is Sierra. This is Sierra, and this is Kai. Gotcha. And there's one hiding below yes. in the back there. So. <laughs> so um, you're about to, uh, we come in, you're packing up because mm -hmm. you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the streets. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord, our landlord didn't pay the mortgage, and they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh my gosh! And then, how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, almost a year now. Yeah, we went oh, to our God. we went to her mom's. Her mom had bed also. We went yeah, there for a little bit, and then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills, and I was giving what I could, right. and it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're working, yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know, pretty much so. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, wow! And now the kids are in school. Yes, yes sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh, yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them, I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He's yep. happy. Just turned five. Oh, yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. There's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around, if that makes sense. So how about uh, meals? A lot of microwaves. Yeah, what you see I on the table is what we have got for a, our meals right there. Uh, what is that, like a skillet thing I can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in? Yeah. Well, you guys are smiling. Looks like you're making the best of it. Not much can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Not easy to smile. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. <sighs> yeah, you still feel like you failed oh, yeah. somewhere. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, when you're doing the American Dream and you're, you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes, and they're going to school, and their friends stay the night, and then you get somebody that, that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money and then lets you continue to think that you have a home, and next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home. So I have for our, this really what you see except for one small storage shed is all we have left of home. Yeah. Everything else, um, 
we couldn't move it in two hours. That was it. I, I was once evicted and given a half an hour, so I know it happens. I can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids and a whole family and having to move. It was just me. Man, my heart goes out to you. What would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel? Because this is this is a face of homelessness that they don't see. Um, put a smile on for your kids and, and, and make the best that you can. You know, and, and and pretty much like like us, if you're gonna cry, try to. Except for her right now, but if you're gonna try to try to go yeah. into the yeah. bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it, because you know, dads ain't supposed to cry, and yeah. and that's mom's job, I guess, to cry. Yeah, but it's you, okay right. to cry. <laughs> but you don't know what anyone's going through or how they get where they're. At. Oh yeah, yeah. people so look at you. Don't and, make the assumption that yeah, you know. Don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home, you know it. What the economy is nowadays, a lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making thirty dollars an hour, but they can't they can't make the ends meet with children and, and so, so they end up in these hotels, which, as we started, it's still better than the streets. Yeah, that's that's the that's the main thing. That's why you know it, it, you don't want to be here, but but you you got a roof over your head and and, and keeps everyone together. Yeah, my daddy always told me before he died, homes what you make it. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I go to work and I come in here, I take my shower and I play with the kids and then. God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yeah. Yep, you sleep yeah. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us, or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um stability yeah stabi stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Uh, my father passed. He passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. Oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent, what we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, what we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, so, you don't have that, I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. One more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and yeah. they take a lot of flack for it. Right. I will go. Well, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. Oh, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but... No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you are listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People.
and Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. it was just it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. And my goodness, that wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion, bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story here on Our American Story. 